podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 5th of April, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network will allow you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL25, EPL25, to get... 25% off at checkout, be it the hardware or software package, EPL25. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings. You can trust them to keep your data safe and get you watching whatever it is you want to view. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out both the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops for all your football merchandising needs. You can find them on Etsy, use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had one game in the Premier League last night, and what a game it turned out to be. Crystal Palace 3, Arsenal 0. Again, Crystal Palace 3, Arsenal 0. Arsenal turned up for this game and it felt like they were overlooking Crystal Palace. It felt like they were looking beyond Palace at what on paper looked like more difficult games to come. They lined up with no Kieran Tierney, no Tommy Asu, so the backup fullbacks were in. But they were full strength pretty much everywhere else. And they looked all over the place. Defensively, defensively, it was a shambles. The midfield did not function properly at all. Mark Nodegaard couldn't get into the game. Saka and Smith Rowe, two immensely gifted players, found themselves being hounded by two dogged fullbacks. And Lacazette was a non-factor for most of the game. More worrying for Arsenal fans moving forward is that when you look at the bench, the only players you'd look at and say they could come on and change the game are Gabriel Martinelli, who's obviously an incredibly gifted player, and Eddie Nketiah, who's leaving in the summer on a free transfer and may not be fully committed to the Arsenal cause, may not want to get injured between now and the end of the season and risk losing out on a good payday. I think the same is true of Lacazette. He's obviously out of contract. Arsenal have publicly said, They're not even going to think about a new contract for him until the end of the season. That's a bit of a slap in the face for a player of his caliber and his status in the game. A player of his age wants to be assured of what his next contract is going to be because it will be his last big contract. And you'd wonder if Lacazette's mind is not drifting. He's available to clubs all over Europe Surely his agent is receiving phone calls and probably negotiating with multiple clubs. Lacazette will be part of that. That means his focus can't entirely be on Arsenal. 
The same is true, obviously, of Enketia. There's been a lot of reports that Portuguese sides, French sides, German sides, and Spanish sides are interested in Enketia. So his agent is likely receiving calls. There'll also be Premier League clubs asking to be kept aware of any developments on his contract front. So with all of that going on, Arsenal now have no striker who's committed to the club for next season, other than Follower and Balogun, who's on loan at Middlesbrough and can't help them. So with no reliable goal scorer that they can really back to do the job for them, they're blunted at one end. Without their two starting fullbacks, they're having to use squad players. Now, Tavares is a young player with a lot of potential, but he's still very raw defensively. One of the great things about Kieran Tierney is how reliable he is. He's 7 out of 10 most weeks. There are weeks where he's dreadful. There are weeks like it looks like Kieran Tierney won a raffle to get on the pitch, but they're very few and far between. Normally, he's a solid 7 out of 10. The bigger loss with Tierney is that he's the organizer of that backline. He is the leader of that team. You saw it last night. Absolutely no leadership to be seen in that team anywhere. You've got the captain's armband on the shoulder of a fella who's not going to be at the club next year. Your vice captain was the captain and had it stripped from him from it because of his behavior. So there's no leadership there. At right back, Tommy Asu was absolutely outstanding when he came in from Bologna. And he's a very specific type of right back as well. He's someone who's probably more naturally a right-sided centre-back in a three than an out-and-out right-back. He, he's very similar to Branislav Ivanovic in that way. He's that taller, defensive-minded, safe-on-the-ball type of player who's outstanding defensively. And what he has done this season is he's been a crutch for Ben White. So he's helped White massively defensively. He's also allowed Ben White to carry the ball into midfield simply by slotting across. And if Arsenal get turned over in transition, White would just drop to right back rather than to centre back. I do wonder if Arteta, assuming Tommy Asu doesn't start the next game, if he might move Ben White to right back and bring Rob Holding into the team. Rob Holding's not really good enough to start in the Premier League, but at the same time, it allows them to be more similar in terms of their makeup. And you'd have to say that having that defence first back four has been a big feature for Arsenal this season. Their defensive record, it's not great, but it's not bad. And if we eliminate the first three games where they conceded nine goals, it looks a lot better across the last 26 games, 25 goals conceded in 26 games. That's respectable. Again, it's not great, but it is respectable. It's bordering on good. Bringing in Cedric weakens you drastically. He's not a particularly good defender. He's also much more attack-minded. So the natural urge for him when the ball is moving forward is for him to get forward, and not just as a supporting recycle option. He wants to get forward and overlap. And the issue he has is that at his age now, he doesn't have a the quality on the ball to really make much happen and b the legs to get back into position 
Whereas Tomiyasu would traditionally stay behind the ball and give Arsenal that solidity. If one of the Arsenal back four was going to join the attack, it would be Ben White or it would be Tierney. But it would never be both. With Cedric, we were seeing White move forward last night and Cedric move forward. And Tavares' natural inclination is to get forward. So Arsenal have been very good at only allowing one defender to really join that attacking rank. And regardless of whether it's White or Tierney, it means they can easily slot into a back three to give themselves a decent base against any kind of transition attack. Tomiyasu slots in, and then either White is the central one and Gabriel is the left, or Gabriel is the central one and Tierney slots in on the left. That back three basis has been key to their defence this year. Arsenal haven't gotten caught a whole lot in transition this season. Last night they did. And a big part of that is because Cedric changes the geometry of the defence. I said before, Arsenal need a lot this summer. And we'll get into it, but they need to address their depth in certain areas. They play a specific style of football. They don't really have anything resembling a plan B. Arteta isn't good enough to have a plan B. He hasn't yet mastered plan A. But because he's so staunch in what he wants to do, he needs to be certain that if one of his players is missing, he has a like-for-like replacement to come into the teams. Now, Arsenal have a couple of very high-profile, high-potential right-backs in their academy who could slot into the first team over the next couple of years. They don't fit the profile of Tomiyasu. So if Tomiyasu is not there, things are going to change. Now, if Saliba comes back next season and is kept, Ben White could be the backup right back, as well as if he's still the starting centre-back, it's just moving across with Saliba coming in at centre-back. That could be an option for them. Personally, I'd go and I'd buy a backup right back who's of a similar profile. I wouldn't take the risk of not having that player there because if Saliba or White are injured now, I'm properly screwed. So among the long list of things Arsenal need, and again, I I do want to have a look at that, that's got to be considered one of them. Mateta put Palace 1-0 up on on 16 minutes, and this highlighted some of the flaws in Arsenal's defence when they don't have their best defenders available. It's a very simple lofted free kick into the box by Conor Gallagher. Tavares is far too concerned with wrestling Joachim Anderson and not focused on the ball. He turns his back to the ball. He genuinely, as the ball is in midair, has no idea where the ball is. He's too busy wrestling. Anderson gets quite a fortunate head to the ball because, again, because he's being wrestled, he's turned away from it. The ball sort of hits him on the back of the head, goes across the goal, and is tapped home from short distance by Mateta. Mateta, 1-0 to Palace. Ayu makes it 2 on 24. And again, it's some calamitous defending here. You get Anderson playing a good pass, but... 
one that really should have been dealt with or should have been sealed off. So he plays the ball into AU. Tavares is in a good position to defend AU if he's got a centre-back behind him in support if he gets beaten 1v1, if the first touch takes it past him. Gabriel, unfortunately, gambles, stretches for the ball, moves well out of position, stretches the ball, doesn't get to it. And AU's first touch then takes him past Tavares into the space that you would want Gabriel just sitting waiting for the ball. Now, I'd want more from Ben White here. I'd really want Ben White to be covering across, but he's out of position as well. AU into acres of space and finishes past Ramsdale. The third came on 74 minutes. Will Zaha picked the ball up in his own half and Arsenal's defence backed off and backed off and backed off. And the next thing you knew, Zaha was in the Arsenal penalty area. Odegaard has sprinted back, gotten himself in a position to make a tackle and unfortunately catches Zaha's foot and drags it. Similar to the incident with Iheanacho and Varane on the edge of the United penalty area on Saturday where Iheanacho kind of catches Varane's foot and pulls it and causes him to stumble, whatever you want to call it. Zaha goes down, Zaha gets the penalty. He steps up and he puts the keeper the wrong way. Arsenal did have some chances in the game. Uh, Gaeta made one good save. Arsenal hit the post late on from Eddie and Ketty with a long-range speculative effort. Smith Rowe scuffed a good chance. Odegaard put a half-decent chance wide. But as I've said before with this Arsenal team, I think they're soft. When they conceded that first goal, they go into complete shell shock mode and they begin to run around like chickens with their heads cut off. They lose all sense of structure and they're punished. Liverpool did it a couple of weeks ago. Scored, allowed Arsenal to lose the run of themselves, scored again, game over. Palace did exactly the same. Scored, allowed Arsenal to lose the run of themselves, scored again. Now, at that point, there's only 25 minutes gone. So unlike the Liverpool game, Arteta can't just give up the ghost. But he did come damn close to it. And this Arsenal team have nobody on the pitch or in that dugout who's really able to lift the team when they go behind, to galvanise the team, get them together, clear heads, and get them pushing forward again. That's something they're massively going to need to address in the summer. Like I said earlier, Arteta has no plan B. And his plan A isn't very effective when Arsenal are behind by one goal. It's not at all effective when they're behind by two goals. Arsenal have taken four points this season from losing positions. Once against Crystal Palace... At the Emirates, earlier in the season, they were 2-1 behind, into added time, got a little bit fortunate with the amount of added time played, and Lacazette scored. The Wolves game a couple of weeks ago, again, they're 1-0 down in that one. They look, for all intents and purposes, dead and buried. 
Pepe scores on 82, gets them back in the game. Wolves, who'd been time-wasting to their own detriment, caused the referee to add on, I think, seven minutes in total. And Arsenal score on 95. It's gone down as a Jose Sa own goal, but it was Lacazette's shot. That's it. That's the only time this season they've taken points having gone behind. Every other game that they have taken something from, they've gone ahead. That's a concerning thing. Now, some people put it down to Arsenal being a very young team, and that's fine. But you've still got to have character at a young age. And how long can we make the they're a young team excuse for them until it starts to cost them in a bigger scale? So I was speaking to some Arsenal fans last night, and they were saying these were level-headed Arsenal fans, not the moronic component of the Arsenal fan base who have been telling everybody that Arsenal are back, that Arsenal are going to challenge for the title next season, that Arteta has Klopp's number, all that type of nonsense that they're going to challenge City, etc., etc., etc. These were level-headed Arsenal fans. And they were saying that in their view, if they could finish sixth, that would be a progressive season. They finished eighth the last two years, so sixth, by its very nature, being higher than eighth, is progress. It would also mean Europa League football. If they got fifth, likewise, that would be even better. Those Arsenal fans have the right idea. The ones who are now so caught up in finishing in the top four that finishing fifth or sixth will be a disaster to them, they're the issue because they're the louder fans. And a lot of Arsenal fans have obviously gotten very caught up in this top four charge. It is worth pointing out that we are 29 games into the season and Arsenal have only been in the top four for eight weeks. They've never been higher than fourth. So they've only really been in the mix for fourth. They've never had a stranglehold on fourth. But for those fans who've worked themselves up into such a frenzy about it, they will view fifth or sixth as a massive disappointment. Now, there is some truth to it being a disappointment. As I've said, I think they need quite a bit this summer. Like, if they really want to elevate themselves, they need quite a bit. To do that, they need Champions League money. I don't imagine the Cronkies will spend another big bag of money if there isn't Champions League football this season, or next season, rather. I think they'll spend some money. But Arsenal fans seem to be under the impression they were going to spend 150 to 200 million this summer. That money's not going to be there without Champions League football. It just isn't. And when we look at the age profile of the Arsenal team, and we look at the players who play regularly for them, the starting goalkeeper is obviously Aaron Ramsdale. Aaron Ramsdale is 23. He'll be 24 in May. He's a young goalkeeper. So he's a long way short of hitting his prime years. In defense, 
It's Tommy Asu, 23. Kieran Tierney, 24, will turn 25 in the summer. Ben White, 24. And Gabrielle, 24. That's a young defence, none of whom are in their prime years yet. In attack, we know Saka, Odegaard, Smith, Rowe, Martinelli. Odegaard is the oldest. I think he's 22, 23. The rest are 20, 21. They're years away from their prime years. My question is, are we going to have to wait for all of them to develop before we really start to put pressure on Arsenal to get there? In midfield, they've got Thomas Partey, who's, I think, 28. I think turns 29 this year. Yeah, he'll be 29 this summer. And Granit Xhaka. Now, Xhaka is the first port of call to be upgraded upon. You can sell me on Arsenal going into next season with Ramsdale. Though I'm not a fan, the same defence, bringing back Saliba, Partey, any three of the four behind the striker. And that's fine. But they need to find a midfielder to partner Thomas Partey. And that midfielder is going to be expensive because that midfielder has to add not just to the playing side, but to the mentality side as well. That's a position where they need to find someone with real leadership, someone with a dogged nature, Someone that's capable of getting into a scrap and leading the team through it. Someone that will relish that battle. Now, I think Calvin Phillips is the perfect answer there. But Calvin Phillips will cost somewhere in the 50 to 60 million pounds range this summer. Now, I think Phillips and Tomas Partey is a good partnership. Phillips, I think, is 26. So he's in the same sort of age group as Tierney and the defence, entering his prime years. He's just turned 26 in December. So he fits from an age point of view. But when we consider that it's probably going to be, say, two more years for that defence to start reaching their better years, two more years for that attacking four who'll fit into three positions to start becoming more consistent. That's the only knock on them now is consistency. Well, then Thomas Partey is going to be 31. So that's a position that's going to have to be replaced as well. So would Arsenal be better off maybe trying to cash in on him this summer, given he's had injury problems, he's been inconsistent. He's had this one consistent run for the last three months and maybe trying to get somebody else. But again, who is that player and what's the cost? Is it going to be financially viable to do that? Because if you don't do it now, Partey's value will only decrease once he hits 30 and his contract starts to shorten. So I do think Arsenal need to consider the option of moving on Thomas Partey this summer while they can still get good value for him and bringing in the midfielder. In reserve to them, those two potentially new starting midfielders or Partey and Phillips, you've got Lekonga, who's promising but raw. 
Elneny, who's your fifth midfielder if you play in midfield two. Torreira, who they don't seem to want. Guendouzi, who's going to sign from Marseille on a permanent deal this summer. Ainsley Maitland-Niles should be an option there, but he's been cast out by Arteta. So they need a backup as well. So you either need to sign two or potentially three midfielders, depending on what you do with Thomas Partey. Because you've got to look at your timeline. You can't just have one random 28, 29-year-old and a bunch of 26s and below. If you're going to build this young team with a long-term plan and all the players are on board and you can be certain that Saka and Martinelli are going to sign extensions and commit their long-term future to the club, then you should probably commit to players 26 or so being your, your oldest starters. You can have a bit of experience in the squad, but maybe the likes of Calvin Phillips should be your oldest player if you were to bring him in. They need that starting striker, and that's going to be expensive. They seem committed to going and getting a marquee name up front. Now, I've said recently I think they should go for someone like an Andre Silva. Very good link player, proven goal scorer. Won't cost the sun, moon and the stars and can be a good bridge player to get you into top four, which would then allow you to go and spend big on a big money striker. Now, what we know about Arsenal is they're not going to attract the very best. They're not getting Haaland. They're not getting Mbappe. The best they can probably do is Victor Simeon. Now, whether he would be interested in that move, I'm not sure, but it's worth kicking the tires on. Victor Simeon is going to cost you 70 to 80 million pounds. The other option is Alexander Isak. He's going to cost you 70 million euro on his buyout. So that's about 62, 63 million pounds. They're both very good. They're both very promising. Neither of them guarantee you a lot of goals next season. The other option is Darwin Nunes. Now, he might guarantee you goals, but it might take him a season to settle if we look at what happened at Benfica. And he's going to cost over £50 million. So that's at least 55 to 70, 75 million for the striker that they apparently want. Another 55 to 60 for the, the starting midfielder. If they get lucky and they can sell Partey and replace him with a similar type of price, that's great. But then you've got that backup midfielder. You also need a backup number nine because Enketi is leaving too. That could be another 15 to 20 million pounds. I've said before I'd go Jao Pedro from Watford. I think he fits the timeline. I think he fits the talent level. I think he's one you could bring in and develop. Then you need that backup midfielder. That's another 10, 15 million pounds. You have Saliba coming in, but you need another backup centre-back because you're so heavily reliant on having a left-footed centre-back there and you've just sent Pablo Mari out and he doesn't seem to have a way back to the club. You're going to need to buy a left-footed centre-back. Those aren't all that common, so that's going to come in a premium. 
You need that backup right back. You need a backup goalkeeper. I believe they have a deal done to bring in an American. But again, that's money going out. And what money is coming in? What money is coming into the club? Who are they selling that they don't need? That's bringing in a decent amount of money. So they're going to lose Lacazette and Ketty. And actually, El Nenny is at a contract as well. So that's not ideal. They can sell Bernard Leno. He'll have one year left in his contract. Does that really bring in big money for them? I, I genuinely don't think it does. I genuinely don't think it does. I think you'll be lucky to break even on that transaction of selling him and bringing in the American keeper. I can't think what the keeper's name is, and I genuinely just can't be bothered to look it up. So we look to the rest of the squad. Ramsdale will stay. Leno's gone. Okongwo, the young uh, academy keeper, will stay. White stays. Gabriel stays. Holding is your third centre-back. So your fifth centre-back. You can't afford to sell him. You can't sell Tierney or Tavares or Tomiyasu. Cedric won't have any value on the transfer market. Um, Thomas Partey, if they sell him, they have to replace him as, with a starter. Like I said, Elneny's at a contract. Granit Xhaka, what does he bring? Last summer, it was offers of $12 million. He's a year older. He hasn't had a particularly good season. Does he bring $10, $12 million this year? You can't get anything in for Lacazette. So the only player they have there is Nicola Pepe. Now he might bring 25, 30 million. It's a massive loss on what they paid for him, but they've used him so infrequently that they've devalued him. Now they've got a bunch of players out on loan that can bring in some money. So Alex Runner, Alex, oh, sorry, Runner Alex Runnerson, he's not worth anything. A million max. Hector Bellerin, what can Hector Bellerin bring in the trans market? 27, has never been the same since tearing his ACL. Out of contract in 2023, so one year left, does he bring 10 million? That's probably about it. Pablo Mari maybe brings 10 million. There's a 6 million buy option on Mavroponos for Stuttgart. So that's what that will be. Uh, Guendouzi, it's an 8 million buy, buy option. Lucas Torreira, does he bring 10 to 12? Reese Nelson? I mean, I think they'd be better off keeping him for depth, especially if Pepe's going to leave. But what does he bring? 8 to 10? And Ainsley Maitland-Niles, is that 15 million? You add all of that up, it's 70, 80 million for the players they could sell. That will cover your backup right back, your backup centre back, your backup striker, the new goalkeeper coming in, and your backup central midfielder. It doesn't cover the cost of the two starters you need. And I saw Arsenal fans last night say, oh, but Liverpool only signed two players and it took them from 
fourth to competing with City. Well, hang on a second now. That Liverpool team that was fourth had Trent, had Salah, had Mane, had Firmino, had Andy Robertson, had Joel Matip. So it only really need, had Ginny Wijnaldum, Jordan Henderson was there, Emery Chan was there. It needed elite-level players. Now, neither a Simeon or Calvin Phillips are elite-level. Phillips is very, very good, not quite elite, and probably doesn't have the potential to be elite. He's probably close to being what he's going to be. A Simeon could become elite, but you're talking two, three years down the line. And to get those elite-level players, Fabinho, Van Dijk and Alisson, the players that changed the tra trajectory of Liverpool, Liverpool sold Phil Coutinho and got $145 million for him. It was by selling their most valuable asset that Liverpool repurposed that money into a much better team. Now, Arsenal's most valuable asset is Bakayo Saka. So, would they sell him? Would they sell him knowing they still have Smith Rowe, Odegaard and Martinelli for those three roles behind the striker? Their fans tell you no. I don't believe they would, but he's got two years left in his contract and he's so far been non-committal on, on an extension. And you see, the longer you wait for this team to come of age, the more frustrated players like him and Martinelli will become because they're... Champions League caliber players playing at a non-Champions League uh, club. So there's no real easy route for Arsenal if they miss top four this season. If they get top four, it changes things. That'll be a big influx of cash and they can use that to bring in the starting striker and Phillips. The sales will cover the squad depth as long as they bring back Saliba and as long as they're smart and as long as they get good value for the players they want to sell. But Arsenal haven't been getting good value for players they want to sell. To date, I think Joe Willock's the only player they've actually sold. Everyone else was released from their contract, costing them a fortune. They haven't been able to find money very easily. There's also then this question of whether Arteta is actually a Champions League caliber manager. I don't believe he is. I think it's very easy when you manage one game a week and have an entire week to plan to set your team up in a certain way, especially when you've been backed the way he's been backed and especially when you inherit the type of players he inherited, Saka, Smith-Rowe and Martinelli. You hand them three players to any manager, they're already a foot up on the competition. Arsenal's running is very difficult. I've highlighted this before. I think it's probably the most difficult run-in that any top six club have. Wolves have a fairly difficult one as well, but this is very, very hard. So they get Brighton at home next. You'd expect them to win, but Brighton are a weird team and do weird things. Then they go to Southampton, another really weird team, more than capable of beating Arsenal. Then it's away to Chelsea, home to Manchester United, and away to West Ham. 
There's three very losable games there, especially the two away games. Leeds at home, you'd expect them to win. Then it's Tottenham away. Then it's Newcastle away. Never a fun place to go. Newcastle are much improved under Eddie Howe. They have had some poor results recently, and obviously were walloped by Spurs, but would it surprise anybody if they got a 1-1 draw at home to Arsenal? And then they'll beat Everton on the final day of the season. But that's a really difficult run-in. And Arsenal are now fifth. Level and points with Spurs. They do have a game in hand, but that game in hand is away to Chelsea. So a really tough place to go, a really tough game for them. They've got a worse goal differential than Spurs, which they didn't have on Saturday. Now they do. Spurs are plus five better off. It's really starting to look hard for Arsenal to get top four. Because Spurs have an easier run in. Spurs have Arsenal at home. So even if Arsenal did beat Chelsea, as long as Spurs win their games and beat Arsenal at home, Spurs will get top four. It is now in Spurs' hands, regardless of the fact that Arsenal have a game in hand. And does anyone really see Arsenal stringing together a long run of wins? They've done a three in a row, a three in a row, a four in a row, and recently a five in a row. And the five in a row was somewhat impressive. They did beat Wolves twice and Leicester, but they were aided by the fact they played a bad Brentford team and a bad Watford team. It's hard to find. When you look at Arsenal's season, it's really hard to find a standout impressive result. Beating Norwich 1-0, not very impressive. Same with Burnley. They beat Tottenham 3-1, but Tottenham were in absolute chaos at the time. They were starting to come apart at the seams. The two draws with Brighton and Palace obviously are disappointing results, as was the opening day defeat to Brentford. You'll excuse defeats against your Chelsea's and your Man City's and then your Liverpool's. Uh, They beat Villa 3-1. Villa were losing five in a row and about to sack the manager. Uh, They beat Leicester 2-0. Leicester were missing a bunch of players. They beat Watford 1-0. They got hammered by Liverpool. They did beat Newcastle 2-0. Newcastle were nailed to the foot of the table. They lost to a a mediocre United team. They lost to a dreadful Everton team. Southampton 3-0 was a decent result. They did beat West Ham 2-0, but West Ham were missing three of their first-choice defenders. They hammered Leeds away, hammered Norwich away. Good performances, but you expect those results. Lost to City at home. That might be their best performance of the season. In truth, that first 50 minutes. Um, They drew it home at Burnley. That's a really bad result. They beat Wolves away. Good result. They beat Brentford at home. If there'd been five more minutes in that game, Brentford might have pulled out a draw. They beat Wolves at home. They beat Watford away. They beat Leicester at home. They beat Villa. But what's the standout result? If we don't look at the context of the games, you'd say Spurs and West Ham. They're the two best teams they've beaten this this season. Spurs and West Ham. Neither of them are great. 
they're both good teams. But again, there's context to go into both of those results. And the fact that if you go and watch that Spurs game back, Arsenal were quite fortunate. Son missed a sitter. There should have been a Spurs penalty. Ben White should have been punished for the foul on Kane. Ramsdale pulled off a ridiculous save. They could easily have thrown that one away. If you'd said to an Arsenal fan in July of last year, your best result next season or your best performance and result is coming from behind to beat Wolves at home. They would think that's a fair disaster of a season. I don't know that. Don't know that they'd be all that wrong. Like, I don't think it's been nearly as impressive as people make out. They've had the easiest schedule to date, which is why they have such a horrific run-in. Like, that, that is a dreadful last nine games to have to go through to secure a top-four finish. They could easily lose four of those games. Easily. Chelsea, United, West Ham, and Tottenham. That's, it's easy to see them losing those four games. It's not that easy to see them winning those four games. Could maybe beat United at home, but I don't see them beating Chelsea away. I don't see them beating Spurs away. I don't see them beating West Ham away. I think it's more likely that they lose another game, such as Southampton away, or potentially even Newcastle away, than that they win those four away games. I think it's more likely they lose five or six games between now and the end of the season than them running the slate. And that's a tough position to be in. There's going to be big question marks this summer about the contracts of Saka and Martinelli, which run out in 2024. This is the summer they need to start getting them tied down or all of a sudden it starts to become more and more of a story. Oh, these players haven't signed on. Oh, this club is looking at Saka this club is looking at Martinelli. Come the summer, Arsenal have a decision to make. They'll only have 12 months left. And that becomes a big distraction. That becomes all people talk about. That becomes the preeminent thought for fans. I know it's the preeminent thought for Liverpool fans right now with the likes of Salah, Mane, Naby Keita and Bobby Firmino. It's going to be the same for Arsenal. At least the Liverpool four, they'd walk away with a title and a Champions League in their pocket. What would Arsenal have to show? An FA Cup a couple of years ago? Not great. Not great. This is a a defining seven weeks coming up for Arsenal. It's going to have massive knock-on effects on their future. Because unless they can get those two signed up for the longer term, they may have to start rushing this rebuild. If they do that, they'll skip steps and it'll be a castle built on sand and it will all fall apart again. And to rush it means spending more money. Where's the money coming from? I think they're probably the most interesting team to watch for the next three months the rest of the season and into the summer and see what they do. They have a lot of needs, not a whole lot of money to spend on them and the positions they need 
filled, especially in their starting 11, are massively important positions and very expensive positions. And as I said, they need to find leadership as well as the talent. Because if they don't, this team will remain soft. And it will be like those late years Wenger teams that had Ozil and Alexis Sanchez and played wonderful football, but were soft and got bullied and didn't know how to react when they got a smack in the mouth and didn't know what it was to win major honours. They won a few FA Cups. Whoop-de-doo. Your Arsenal football club, you need to be challenging for the title. You need to be challenging for the Champions League. Finishing fourth isn't a trophy. The reason you drove, the fans drove Wenger out is because he said fourth was a trophy. And now we cycle back round and they're back in that kind of mold if they're not careful. That's too long on Arsenal. Let's look at Crystal Palace, who deserve massive credit for this victory. Really impressed with the job Patrick Vieira has done this season. They're now ninth in the league. And you can really see the work that Vieira has put in coming to the forefront. The pressing system, their defensive shape, how aware they are of the game state is what impresses me as well. Like they understand when the other team is on top. They understand when now is not the moment to go and play our expansive attacking football. But when they have control of the game, when the opposition are on the back foot, they can really open things up and play some impressive stuff. This is a Palace team that through the season have only lost back-to-back games one time. Now it was a three-game losing streak to Villa, Leeds and United. They'll be a little bit disappointed, especially about that Leeds result. But other than that, they've avoided back-to-back defeats. They've picked up points consistently along the way. First four games, they picked up five points. Next four games, three points. Next four games, eight points. Next four games was only three. That was a bit disappointing. But then it's four points again. Then it's three points then it's seven points. And in this current four-game stretch, we're only two games into it. They already have four points. You take four points on average for every four games you play, you'll be all right in this division. You'll stay up. And that was the only thing that mattered to them this season, staying up. The only thing that mattered for Crystal Palace this season was staying up. Because of the turnover in the squad during the summer, we saw a lot of players leave. Cahill, Dan, Henderson, Hennessy. McCarthy, Sacco, Townsend, Van Anhold, Wickham, all of these players leaving, a lot of experience, a lot of minutes walking out the door and coming in with younger players, Olise, Gwehi, Edward, Anderson's a little bit older, but still inexperienced in the Premier League, only one season under his belt. Will Hughes, a more experienced head, but again, he played more championship than Premier League football. So, To bring all of that in, to have that much turnover in your squad in one season and be in the top half when you've played 30 games, very, very impressive. Only nine defeats for them this season. That's three less than Wolves. In fact, if we look at the Premier League table, Crystal Palace have lost less games than Wolves, less games than West Ham, 
less games than Tottenham, the same amount as Arsenal. There are only four teams in the division who've lost less games than Crystal Palace. Defensively, they've conceded one more than Tottenham, less than West Ham, less than Manchester United, and less than, obviously, everybody in the bottom half, bar Brighton, who are just such a weird team. They scored 42 goals. That's a big improvement for them. Normally, they're scoring, you know, 30, 31. They're not great in front of goal. This season, they've been better. You'd like to see that kick on next season. And we look at them next season. They're going to go into the summer confident with a bit of momentum. Now, they might have a bit of a weird ownership situation if Josh Harris and his partner have to sell their shares in Palace because they, they're part of the winning consortium at Chelsea. We'll see what happens there. But, you know, you look at Palace and they've got Gaeta. I think he's past his best. I think a new goalkeeper is, is a necessity there. Um, I think you keep Gaeta, you keep Butland. That's your two, three. You've got to get a starting goalkeeper. Gwehi is quality. Anderson is quality. That's fine. But you need depth behind them. You've got Tompkins. You've got Kelly. They're ideally your fourth and fifth centre-back. You've got to get a third centre-back there who can come in and play a similar style to your starters. Um, I think it's probably time to say goodbye to Joel Ward. Probably time to say goodbye. Nat Klein played really well last night, but again, you'd probably look to move him on. You've got Nathan Ferguson as your backup right-back. Go and sign a starting right-back. Go and buy a starting right-back. You've got Mitchell at left-back. I really like him. You've got a good backup there, the young Irish kids. So that's fine. In midfield, Gallagher's the big question mark. Can they keep him? I don't know. He's going to be expensive. It's all dependent as well on who owns Chelsea and what their situation is going to be. Because they might not be in a position to buy many players this summer. So they might have to keep Conor Gallagher. They would do well to keep him. He's more than good enough to play for them. It's just a matter of minutes there. They've got... Kante, Kovacic, and Jorginho, who will all be ahead of him. Will he stagnate if he's not getting regular games? Will he be happy? If the, if Everton, sorry, if Crystal Palace can't keep him, I think they should look at someone like Ainsley Maitland-Niles from Arsenal, uh, Tom Davies from Everton. In fact, I'd probably look at both of them anyway, because Maitland-Niles could be your right back or at least a, an option there and play as a number eight. You could play the other side to Gallagher if you could keep him. Davies could be a really nice squad addition to have someone that can play either eight position, give you kind of that extra drive for the last 30, 25, 30 minutes when the starter started to flag a little bit. Um, Coyote and Will Hughes will be fine as the sixes. So you need to bring in at least one starting eight, potentially two. That's going to be a little bit expensive. But in the front three, they're probably fine. Uh, I wouldn't be against bringing in one more high-talent young player, maybe from the championship, maybe a Brennan Johnson type. In fact, you could f- probably fill most of your needs by just going looking at Nottingham Forest, unless they come up, in which case they'll be keeping their players. But you could do most of your shopping if you're Crystal Palace in the championship. There's three good right-back options in Spence, Bogle, and Isaiah Jones of Middlesbrough. Multiple good midfield options. 
and decent attacking options as well that they could look to tap into. It doesn't have to be an expensive summer, but I do think they should try everything they can do to keep hold of Conor Gallagher, regardless of what the fee is. If it's 40 million, I know it's a huge outlay for a club like Palace, but maybe you go the loan market in the other areas. Maybe you don't buy a right back. Maybe you try and loan one in. Maybe Aaron Wan-Bissak is available for loan. You know, he'd fit. He's not good going forward, but we know he can defend. And under Vieira, he might improve defensively with players like Wehi and Anderson talking him through games. That might help him big time. Palace are one of the, the fun teams of the season. They're fun to watch. It's great to see a club completely changing its approach on the pitch. I think they've got a couple of contenders for the most improved player in the league. Uh, Tyreek Mitchell. Conor Gallagher has got to be in that conversation as well. They've got so many exciting young players. And there's players that, you know, that, that academy is, is always producing. They did a very good job in the summer as well of snatching up a couple of young players like Nascimento from Peterborough, who is, I think, 17 now, and hugely talented, hugely talented young forward. Peterborough were livid about the fact that they lost out on him. Um, so they've got, you know, young Luke Plange as well. They brought in from Derby. Again, very talented. They've got a lot to be excited about at Selhurst Park. Great win last night. Great performance. Deserved win. And nice to see Vieira getting his due because I have to say I was a doubter in part because the, the Nice thing didn't go too well and I didn't didn't really know what to expect of him uh, at Palace. And the fact that he wasn't first choice uh, was a little bit of a concern. Uh, more bad news for Arsenal by the looks of things. Kieran Tierney's injury that kept him out of last night apparently is not looking good. Uh, he came back from international duty and felt something wrong in his knee. There is some damage there. We'll hopefully more no, no more on Tuesday, but it's not looking good. He's seeing a specialist. And we'll know more of the extent of the injury, but the feeling that he had wasn't really positive and what the scan showed either. We have to wait and see. That sounds like Kieran Tierney could be looking at a spell on the sidelines. And if he's out and Tommy Asu's out, they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. Last thing before we go to the break, I uh, thought Wayne Rooney was interesting on Monday Night Football last night. Some honesty, I thought about Manchester United, about the fact that they really can't afford to miss on their next managerial appointment, that he thinks Pogba and Cristiano should be moved on. Some interesting insight into how things were under Mourinho as well. I thought his comments on Frank Lampard and Everton were laughable, but you know there is that. But I thought he was good. I thought he presented himself well. I thought he spoke well. Seemed much more confident than he has in previous uh, appearances on the television. So uh, good for him. Good for him. If the managerial thing doesn't work out, maybe he does have a career as a pundit in the future. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got a little preview of Champions League games tonight, and we have some news and gossip. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So... Two games tonight, both in the Champions League. Benfica versus Liverpool. 
Manchester City versus Atletico Madrid, both at 8pm. So Benfica are not having a great domestic season. They fin- they are currently third in the Premier League. They are 15 points off Porto, who are first. Nine off Sporting, who are second. They lost to Braga at the weekend. Behind the scenes, the club is in complete turmoil. Their former president has been arrested. Rui Costa is the interim president. George Jesus, who they brought back to much acclaim after his successful spell at Flamengo, hoping to recapture the magic of their 13-14 treble season. Well, he was sacked in December. Nelson Verissimo has stepped in, and he's the acting caretaker manager. Again, a bit like Man United, it's weird to me that a club of Benfica's stature would basically throw away half a season with a caretaker manager, but that's what they're doing. They've done well in Europe. That's worth saying. They've beaten Spartak Moscow. They've beaten Benfica. That qualified them for the group stage. They did get walloped twice by Bayern, but that's, you know, Bayern are a great team. They drew at home with Kiev, sorry, drew away with Kiev, beat Kiev away, beat Barcelona at home and drew away, came through second place out of what was a tough group and then knocked out Ajax. Ajax, who'd won all six of their group stage games and were looking very, very good. Benfica drew 2-2 with them at home and then beat them away. You have to say they've they've done really well and they've earned their spot in these quarterfinals. Some of the players you'll know, Jan Vertonghen, Nicolas Otamendi, Valentino Lazaro was at Newcastle for a while. Um, João Mario's been knocking around for ages as part of that Portugal team that won the Euros. Julian Vagel was once the most highly touted young holding midfielder in Europe. Adele Tarapt, everybody remembers him. The player to watch, though, is Darwin Nunes. 23 goals this season, 20 in the league, three in European competition. He is a machine up front. A big, bruising centre-forward, power pace, good technique. He is the one to watch for them tonight. But also keep an eye for Rafa Silva, the second top goal scorer this season with 11 goals. He's more of the one that makes things tick for them. Really intelligent player. Those are two players Liverpool need to be careful of. Liverpool will be confident of, of winning this game, getting a good lead, and then bringing that home next week for the second leg. Manchester City against Atletico Madrid. City will be strong favourites, but this is Atletico Madrid. This is Diego Simeone. This is not going to be in any way easy for City. Obviously, City are the home team in the first leg, but at the same time, going to Madrid for the second leg, even with maybe a two-goal advantage, won't be all that fun because of the atmosphere that those fans will create. To get to this point, Atleti, Drew at Porto, beat Milan away, lost home and away to Liverpool, lost at home to Milan, but did beat Porto 3-1 in their last game to sneak their way through when they looked dead and buried. They were out. They were drawing 1-1 as the game hit. No, they weren't. Sorry, I'm wrong. They were winning. Um, They were winning 1-0 as the game hit 90. Then they scored two late goals and then... Porto scored a late goal. That was a mental game with the three red cards and all sorts that went on. Um, Atleti are going to come and they're going to try and shithouse their way to a result. That's what they're going to do. That's what they always do in these type of games. They're third in La Liga. 
12 points off the top. They are level on points with Barcelona and Sevilla, but Barca have a game in hand and a better goal difference, which is why Barca are second and Atleti are third. They've lost seven domestic games this season, which isn't good. They had a four-game stretch of defeats, two of whom were against bad teams, Mallorca and Granada. The other two were Real and Sevilla. They also lost to Alaves, who are poor, and Levante, who are poor. They lost to Barca. So they've lost to the other three teams in the top four and to four bad teams. They went out of the Copa del Rey at the round of 16. They went out of the Super Cup of Spain at the semi-final stage. They have not done a good job of trying to defend their title this season, but they will get Champions League football for next season. And they still have a chance to cause a few upsets here in this season's Champions League. They will need to be much improved on their group stage performances, but they are capable. There's obviously not the same caliber of player that was there during their heyday, but Oblak is still there. He's dipped fairly badly this season, but he's still a great goalkeeper. Uh, Jose Jimenez is still a very good defender, but he's very, very injury prone. Renan Lodi's a good left-back. I wouldn't be keen on any of the rest of their defenders, personally. Hermoso's okay, and I would say the rest of them are average or below. Uh, in midfield, Condogby is fairly average. DePaul is interesting, if not inconsistent. Koke is their captain and leader. Thomas Lamar, inconsistent. Lorente, good but inconsistent. Last season... He was a superior player to what he is this year. Hector Herrera's average. Yannick Carrasco can be a game changer or can, he can be a non-event. Javi Serrano's not ready for this type of stage. João Felix, Antoine Griezmann, Luis Suarez, Angel Correa and Matthias Cunha do give them five attackers that can cause anyone problems. There's actually an article on the BBC website Written by Andy West, their Spanish football writer, entitled Joe Felix, is he ready? Is he, sorry, is he finally on the edge of greatness? He's having an incredible run of form at the moment. And he will be a big threat to City. Do give that article a read if you have a chance. That is basically it then for those two games. You'd expect City to win at home. You'd expect Liverpool to beat Benfica. But... um. Neither will be easy games, and the City one in particular will be tough because, well, it's Atletico Madrid. Simeone's coming to, you know, not just park buses, but he's going to dig trenches. He's going to put Gatling guns up on his goalposts. He's going to have snipers in the stands. He's going to do all sorts. There will be some magnificent time-wasting. If, if Atletico score, regardless of whether it's the first minute or the 81st minute, you watch them kill that clock from that second onwards. Whenever they score, if they score, they will try and kill the clock. And if it's 1-0 with 20 minutes to go, it'll be 1-0 to City with 20 minutes to go, it'll be the same thing. They'll trust themselves to overturn a 1-0 deficit when they get that game at home. Um, Interestingly, in the Premier League, we've had the news today that... The Liverpool versus Manchester City game at the weekend is to be refereed by Paul Tierney, who is from Manchester. Uh, Let me just pull this up. I saw James Pierce tweet about it earlier on. James Pierce. 
do to do this is great. Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm wrong. Paul Tierney is the VAR. Anthony Taylor, also from Manchester, is your match referee. If anyone can explain to me how that's okay, that a Manchester-born official will be refereeing the game and a Manchester-born official will be the VAR, I'd love to hear it. I really would. Um, not to suggest that they're biased in any way, but they really shouldn't be allowed to referee those games. Shouldn't be allowed to referee any city or United game. Here's fun. Everton. Might as well take the moment to laugh. Everton have had more red cards, four. Scored more on goals, four. Made more errors directly leading to goals, eight. And earned fewer points away from home, six. Than any other team in the Premier League this season. Magnificent. Uh, the sending off they suffered at the weekend to Michael Keane is the first time in the club's history Everton have had a man sent off in three consecutive league games. It is all going wrong at Everton. Every single bit of it. And news today that other Premier League clubs might sue them if they stay up having completely butchered the financial fair play rules. So poor old Everton are not even going to be out of the woods if they manage to stay up. We'll wrap up with the gossip for the day. Christian Eriksen's former club Tottenham and Manchester United are considering signing the Denmark midfielder on a free transfer this summer after seeing his return to top form at Brentford. I think he'll stay there. I genuinely do. Barcelona's defender Ronald Arejo is set to ignore more lucrative offers from Manchester United and Liverpool to renew his contract. We've been hearing that for weeks, still nothing done. Newcastle are interested in signing Kepa Arizabalaga or Spanish compatriot Robert Sanchez of Brighton to strengthen their goalkeeping options this summer. I saw people say they thought Sanchez would be a great signing. I think he's one of the worst keepers in the league. I genuinely do. I think he's one of the worst keepers in the league. Jurgen Klopp says he's happy with how contract talks are developing with Mo Salah. There remains optimism Liverpool could sign Kylian Mbappe should Salah leave in the summer. No. Uh, Mbappe says remaining at PSG is still an option. I think that might be a political statement from him. An unnamed club has joined Real Madrid in competing for Mbappe's signature. Uh, former French winger Jerome Rothen came out with that statement the other day. Jerome Rothen was a a talented player in his early days at Cannes and Troyes and Monaco, not so much at PSG where he's, his head seemed to overinflate and he became very full of himself, but very talented player. Didn't know he was working in the media now, so fair play to him. But uh, he's the one that broke that story. Uh, Tammy Abraham has hinted at a possible return to the Premier League. He made a very very open-ended statement that didn't really hint at anything. and He just didn't close the door on coming back to England, basically. Arsenal's hopes of signing Alexander Isak will receive a huge boost if Real Sociedad failed to secure European football. Um, his buyout will remain his buyout, so I, I don't think that's true in any way. Serge Gnabry is considering leaving Bayern Munich this summer amid interest from Liverpool and Real Madrid. 
Uh, if Sadio Mane left, I wouldn't say no to Serge Gnabry. I would rather Christopher Nkunku, but I certainly wouldn't say no to Gnabry. Real Madrid will look to loan Eden Hazard for next season. Well, they're still going to be paying his wages because no one's going to take on that absolute atrocity of a contract. FC Cologne's Timo Hubers is a £6 million target for Newcastle, Leeds and Crystal Palace this summer, while West Ham, Southampton and Fulham are also monitoring the German centre-back. Fair play. He would want to work out better than the last German centre-back that Leeds signed, though. As long as he can stay fit, that'll help. Newcastle have been told £25 will be enough to tempt Union Berlin into signing Teo Owanyi this summer, although West Ham and Southampton are also interested in the 24-year-old. He'd make a lot more sense for West Ham than he would for the other two as that backup-slash-successor to Mikel Antonio. Newcastle could offer Calvin Phillips a £120,000 a week deal to sign from rivals Leeds. I, I just... If he signs for Newcastle or Villa, it's just such a sideways move from... Ruben Neves is attracting interest from Barcelona, while João Matinho could also leave the club in the summer. Sporting are now eyeing Portugal midfielders Matthias Nunes and João Polinha from Sporting Lisbon as potential replacements. That's from David Ornstein. Wolves have not given up hope of signing Neves to a contract extension with his current deal expiring in 2024. They don't even need to sell him this summer. They can keep him until next summer. He'll still hold his value fairly well. Manchester United could again look at signing Sergei Milinkovic-Savage to replace Paul Pogba. This is garbage. Barcelona have arranged a meeting with Usman Dembele's agent over a new contract. Having publicly announced they would not be doing so, they're now being forced to crawl back to him because his form has been so good. The Manchester United dressing room is split over the possible appointment of Eric Ten Hag. You know who the last group of people that should have any say in who United appoint as a manager is? It's the players because those players are far too entitled. When Juan Mata's Manchester United deal runs out in the summer, he has no plans to retire or join the United coaching staff. So says the spoofer with the catchphrase. He said he's been told this. Right. We all believe you. Brazilian club Botafogo have agreed to sign QPR's Finland left-back Nico Hamelainen initially on loan. That's bizarre, but fair play to him. Might as well go and live in Brazil for six months. Tottenham have opened talks over a new contract with 18-year-old England striker Dane Scarlett. They have high hopes for him, as they have for Troy Parrott. Whether either of them develops into a player good enough for Spurs, we'll have to wait and see. They're both very, very young. Parrott is 20. Uh, Scarlett is 18 both talented but again we'll wait and see Uh, we'll leave it there then for today folks thank you as always for listening see you tomorrow bye bye
Social Podcast Network.